0: You can't make people respect your boundaries, and you can't make them care about what you need. People ask me all the time, how can I make that happen? And I totally understand why you would want to be able to do that. But my answer is that you can't. And for people who grew up with abuse and neglect and who, as a result, have to teach themselves as adults how to interact with people, how to set boundaries, what to do when someone doesn't respect your boundaries, it seems like the problem is other people. And, you know, sometimes, yes, it is other people, for example, when they attack or violate another person or steal from them. But a lot of the anger and frustration at other people that you might go through around boundaries is really caused by a misunderstanding about what a boundary is. So let's talk about that. Now a lot of people ask me how they can get loved ones to better honor their boundaries, how to get them to be more sensitive about their CPTSD symptoms, for example. And it's totally normal and appropriate to want that kind of support and respect, but I'm going to say something very tough love here. You can ask a person to understand you and what you need, and you can even ask them to help you avoid getting triggered, but they are not under any obligation to do any of that. It's optional for them. That doesn't mean they don't care about you, and it doesn't mean they don't support you. And in fact, when they give you space to notice your own trauma reactions and to work on those inside yourself, Sometimes that is the most loving and supportive thing they can do. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. Even though you may have been told a lot of things like that you have a right to people respecting your boundaries, even when your boundaries are extreme, even when you're acting out of a hurt place inside, like I don't actually think that's a right. It's your right to ask for what you want, for what you think would be helpful. But trying to force other people to help you manage your trauma reactions isn't fair. And it isn't going to work. In fact, it's, you know, it's a form of control. And everyone in our lives has the right not to be controlled by us. You have the right to ask, and you have the right not to spend time with people who don't go along with what you're asking for, but they have the right to be themselves. Now, someone who cares about you, might be willing to change the way they do things if you ask them, but they might not. And PTSD thinking will tell you that someone you love, who you're attached to, who's doing something that bothers you, owes it to you to change. But I want to teach you why in any situation where you're not actually restrained, these people aren't actually doing anything to you. They're being themselves, which you may not like, but they're not preventing your healing. Okay, Right now you're thinking, what? This is Anna going off the ledge here, but that's what I'm saying. When people do their own thing and give you space to work on your own triggers and learn to calm your own PTSD symptoms, you then have an opportunity to learn the only thing that really works or can be sustained, and that is self-regulation. When you're regulated, you have choices. And one of your choices, if you don't like what someone's doing is to not be around them. And I mean, you don't like people drinking, right? For example, maybe you don't be around people drinking. When your brain is regulated, you might see more clearly that this person isn't really drinking at you. They're not doing anything wrong. Or you might see they're really a jerk or they're a bully or they drink too much maybe you ask them to change once or twice. If you ask them three times and they still don't change, well, now you're up against it. If you ask any more, if you just continue to keep, you know, asking for the same thing over and over and they won't oblige, even if you succeed at making them do something, it's not going to bring that harmony and that good feeling of being supported and connected to that person. And that's what you're craving, right? So at that point, if change isn't going to happen, you either... Let go of your grievance or leave the relationship. Because if you push and push and nag and repeat the demand that that they change, it'll only suck the soul out of you and them and everybody who has to deal with you too. So it's a beautiful idea that if someone would change, if they would just change, you would be okay. But even when you can get someone to strike that bargain with you, you know, to try to fix you by being what you ask them to be, you're only putting your CPTSD into a hermetically sealed chamber. What prompts our healing is usually actually friction, problems. People do their thing around us, we get triggered, and it's impossible to control or avoid. So that's why so many people with childhood trauma end up retreating and getting as far away from people as they can. Isolation might prevent triggers but it also prevents fulfillment. So our challenge is to stay away from those who would abuse us and with everyone else to be at peace with people as they are. Peace with people comes with knowing and accepting that healing happens inside. Other people in our lives, they matter, their behavior matters, but they don't have the power to heal us. And even if they were willing to try, they couldn't do it. You know, they can't heal us. So have you been through this experience before where you're trying to help someone and they just won't change? Or when someone tries to help you? And this happens all the time, right? This could happen when you read a self-help book or you see a therapist or you ask a friend for advice or when you watch one of my videos. I can't change you and neither can anyone else. Maybe I can influence you though, but only if you want to learn from me, only if you want to hear what I'm saying and you think, oh, I'll give that a try. And even then, it only works if the obstacles that you carry around to learning and changing aren't in the way. So I'm not saying everything is a construct of our minds or our will. People do influence each other very deeply, very profoundly for good and evil. And this is where I suggest you put your focus on choosing carefully who is going to influence you and thinking carefully about how your behavior influences others. So let's talk about what is realistic for you to expect from other people. They can potentially provide a calm, safe environment. Not everyone can do that and they can encourage you when you're freaked out, and and encourage you to like get out your tools and deal with the disturbance within so for me the tools are a pen and paper and people who love me will sometimes remind me do you want to write your fears and resentments about this i actually don't like it when people suggest that but they're usually right that is usually what will help me when i'm getting kind of um, aggravated you will be amazed when you learn to regulate your trauma symptoms the overreactions the unreasonableness, the demands that we put on other people because it seems like all that's needed is for them to change something about themselves. And you will be amazed how much easier it is for other people to love you and be close to you when you let that go. So how can you do this? When you're in that place where you want to make a demand on someone, it usually means it's time to do what I call stop and drop. Stop the action that's escalating conflict and drop into a chair where you can start writing your fears and resentments. That's one of the two techniques that are part of my daily practice that you always hear me going on and on about here. It's a free course. It's You can learn and try it in less than an hour. It's always down in the description like uh, section down below my videos. It's there called the daily practice. Take the free course. It's also on the free tools page of my website the link to the free tools page is at the top there it's on the courses page of my website at crappy like i hardly let you get away from this it's free though and uh, it's worth giving a try if you're having trouble managing your cptsd symptoms if you're feeling overwhelmed by life by the people around you you might find this as helpful as i have when you get relief from the fearful and resentful thoughts things get clearer And, you know, the fire kind of burns off, and the truth is there, and it cools down. It's not your fault that you were abused and neglected as a kid, but now it's you. You're the one who needs to stop acting out on the trauma and to learn to try things and notice your triggers when they happen and develop techniques to calm them, okay? Now some people will be very open to learning what you're working on and they'll support you, but probably not when you're yelling at them. So it kind of defeats the purpose. So how do we do that? How do we get neutral like that? You'll hear me say this a lot. It helps if you don't talk about it. When you're triggered and you know it, pause. Your thinking is getting dysregulated and if it's anger then by definition that dysregulated anger is going to feel unreasonable to other people. It's an argument waiting to happen and you'd be better off not having that argument. If you have to argue, just say to yourself, I can do it later. Later is better when you're regulated again. When you can choose your words and not just have them fly out like daggers. Now this would be crazy talk if there wasn't in fact a way to get regulated, but we can do that. And it starts with owning the problem, not blaming other people that we feel that way, not with our words and not in our minds, right? Because healing can really move forward when we can just recognize, oh, I'm having a reaction. And then this is the hard part. Resist the urge to say a lot about how you're feeling. You can say something like, oh dear, I'm having one of my reactions. Hold on a sec while I get myself sorted out. But don't set yourself up to insist that you get heard about this. Don't wave your, your feelings like a flag, you know, I'm triggered, I'm triggered. Trying to get other people to deal with that sort of thing tends not to work very well at all. So this is your new approach. This and giving yourself a little time out to write your fears and resentments can work wonders. And after that, whatever you need to discuss is going to be simpler and lighter and easier for another person to hear. And that's a good thing when it happens. But the nicest feeling of all is knowing that Whatever happens, whatever present-day reactions are rising up out of your childhood trauma, you'll be able to deal with it. You'll keep your boundaries, and gradually you'll open your heart to all the love and fun that life has to offer you. If past trauma has made it hard for you to see red flags when they're waving at you, then the first time that you set boundaries for yourself and stick up for what you really want is gonna feel really intense. And even though most of us who were abused or neglected as kids don't start learning this until well into adulthood, I call this the early phase of speaking up the adolescent phase of healing, by the way. When you start saying no, it'll come out like, no, no way! I said no! Even on small questions like, you know, do you want uh, cream in your coffee? <laughs> so everything comes out like big, oversized, and strong, and that's okay. Even if it's too much, it's okay. It's going to come back to size pretty soon through practice. And then there's this normal phase of healing where you spoke up for yourself and you set your boundaries and then doubt creeps in and you get a little bit confused. And this is why it's so important that we don't try to heal alone because it's this backlash period after you've moved forward in your healing when you can be most vulnerable to giving up, to losing your boundaries. So my letter today is from a woman I'll call Denise and she wrote to me with a question but also a success story and I wanted to share that. She's been watching my videos and following my healing program for a while now. And so a lot of progress is happening for her. So she writes "Uh, Dear Fairy, my childhood, while stable in my early years, had a lot of neglect and abandonment, but no violence or sexual abuse. I've got the pencil here to circle things I want to come back to, but first the success story. My childhood, while stable in my early years, had a lot of neglect and abandonment, but no violence. Or sexual abuse. My mother died when I was 10. My father was kind but not perceptive or protective, and he remarried twice to unstable and difficult women, who elbowed my sister and me out in a variety of ways, and to whom he deferred. Fortunately, I had the loving care of an aunt in another country and was able to go to boarding school by the age of 15, which, while I hated it at the time, provided protection for me from the stepmother and her chaotic household. Funny how spirit comes to help, don't you think, she says. So the topic that closely applies to me is a decades-long pattern of being attracted to unavailable men. I've been divorced for a couple of decades after a 10-year marriage. I bowed out of dating about six years ago partly to develop the talents I have, partly out of resignation, and partly to try to heal this tendency. Last week the pattern reared its head again. An intelligent and cultured man that I met at a dinner party months ago subsequently emailed me a flattering note. I responded cordially but cautiously because I had registered that he was wearing a wedding ring In the past few months, a few emails were exchanged, short, friendly, no invitation included, and not flirty after the first one, which was flirty. And frankly, I wasn't sure what he was up to, but I knew enough to keep my distance. Then very recently, he extended an invitation to a daytime event. I asked him to explain the wedding ring to me. I promptly received a long, candid, and complete explanation. He's separated from his wife, separate bedrooms. Oh. Separate bedrooms, not separated. (laughs) Interesting word choice there. But lives in the same house, and because of a chronic illness, she is dependent on his insurance. He wrote that he was only offering a friendship. This offer was actually mixed in with some flattery and by mentioning the possibility of a spark. Let me add right now that I think he's very likely a good person. He's in a tough situation and naturally wants something or someone nice to spend time with. And he may be a bit unaware of the depth of his own attachment to his wife since he hasn't managed to remove his wedding ring. Even though his wife did, uh, did so years ago. She says he's perhaps a bit naive, which dating will rectify once or if he gets out of there. But this does not make him a bad person. Perhaps you have something to say about this, but let me give you the rest of the story. I do have things to say about it. But yes, let's get the rest of the story. Okay. Here's (laughs) she says, here's where you come in. I bulleted in my mind the essence of your message. So she's quoting me here, which I I just, I I find it charming. She says, he's married, which means unavailable, which means morally questionable at best, which means bad news for Denise. (laughs) Yes, you've got me right. Uh, Also, his note was flirty, but the offer was friendship. Mixed messages, bad news for Denise. (laughs) My tendency to feel I have to make everyone happy by meeting their needs, character flaw, or CPTSD, or both. What do you think? Hooked by my own stuff. Bad news for Denise. (laughs) She says me, I say Denise. She's not talking about herself in the third person, just so you know. Okay, but she says here's what I wrote to him once I learned his status. There is no situation in which I will get involved with a married man or any man and meshed with another woman, married or not. The rest of my note was kind but clear. If not for you, she sang to me, I would not have found the courage or words to set such firm boundaries. So immediately, with definite language to boot, so suddenly I felt powerful and free. Yay! I felt respect for myself. Yay! But, she says, woe is me, it was not a hundred percent. I agreed to meet him on the basis of friends only. You know what I'm going to say about that. Friends, yeah. Okay. And then I went into a huge spin, well beyond what the event merited. Knots in my stomach, anxiety, obsessive internal conversations, conversations. The whole agonizing shebang. This, even though I hardly thought about him before and had no interest other than abstractly, meaning I'd like a man in my life but not necessarily him. Ooh, physical signals, okay. Thanks to your videos and courses, I did the daily practice and I reached out to friends who could offer me perspective. All six of them, good job, they all said, including one male, unequivocally, no, do not meet this man or try to develop a friendship. The male friend said it would be like crack cocaine for me. And he was so right. In the deeper recesses of my heart, I am quite hungry for emotional and physical intimacy. Would love someone to know and see me. Would love someone to dote on and share a life. A little attention goes a long way when you feel this way. So I canceled within 24 hours of agreeing to meet him. Okay, good. And then the backlash came. I felt guilty. I felt unkind, too harsh. Maybe we could be friends. Maybe I'm a bad person. Maybe I'm inflexible. Maybe his friend, our connection, would think badly of me. Maybe he will think badly of me. Maybe I should just try. Maybe, maybe, maybe. This is such a good description of the voice of trauma inside. I love it. You've said it so well. By the way, he didn't take no for an answer and attempted to persuade me. Not too much. Two texts that I did not read. Thank goodness. Two days later, the torment is gone. I have a residual emotional hangover, as if having navigated the high seas of a serious storm. Yes! My adrenals are exhausted, but my stomach is at peace, and I slept well last night. The obsession has dissipated. And you're much closer to finding true love, I might add, not being wrapped up with this go-nowhere guy. Okay if you have the time and are inspired she said i'd love for you to address the hangover part and the storm over so little am i wacko no you're not um i will likely mull over this a bit but not mull over him since i only met him once and i will dread running into him though this is not likely all right denise good job you did it you did it and you have perfectly described what it's like in the early phases of healing to set a boundary. And you know what you did, you set a boundary with truth. You asked the right questions, you got answers, you responded to those answers instead of what so many of us have done, you've probably done it, you just pretend you didn't see the ring you pretend you didn't hear the answer about the wife you go along with some explanation and i i would just say you know when you said i might have something to say about it separated from a spouse does not mean separate bedrooms lots of people have separate bedrooms they do that because of snoring or whatever we often do that in my household we are not separated we are very much married Um, wearing a wedding ring is a way to signal to the world that he is married and with somebody. And personally, I do not trust his honesty in this situation. Trying to present himself as somebody who only wears a wedding ring and lives with his wife so she can have insurance. That's not necessary. I mean, I think he would have to stay married to her to be able to share that insurance. I don't know. But even if that were the case, I'm just gonna say, Denise, when you write down, you've taken the dating course, I think. And I always have everybody start, write down what you really want. Write down the no, the deal breakers. And one deal breaker for you I'm going to suggest is, you know, cannot <laughs> be living in a house with uh, somebody who is married to him. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing because I know you're with me on this. It's just like, yeah, there it is. No, a big no way on this one. I think he was lying. I think he was minimizing the level of his attachment. You say he may be a bit unaware. And this is where... The part of your trauma that's trying to make you feel guilty can only feel guilty because it hasn't let you actually come out of denial about this he is wholly aware i assure you that he's married and lives with his wife and um his (laughs) i just wonder how his wife would feel about his shenanigans if she knew so i don't doubt that they have a terrible marriage but i never want for you or anybody in our beautiful community of tender hearts who are healing and you know, rising up to be ready to love and be loved, that they should ever be with somebody who's compromised in this way. Not dishonest, not shady, not half involved with somebody else. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Did you guys see the comment the other day? Somebody came in and, forget the word, mono something or other, that I was like biased towards uh, monogamy and not polyamory, and then put period and then disappointing. (laughs) And I was joking with him that I would love to have a t-shirt that said, that said that about me, that I'm, I'm biased for monogamy and it's, and I'm disappointing. (laughs) And you're disappointing too. And uh, let's all be disappointing to all the people who want us to just do whatever with them in their whatever relationship. We're, we're not available. We're trying to have the relationship that we want. Okay. So I really want that for you. You setting that boundary, that free, powerful feeling you felt. Yes. That's what it's like. Like you think it's going to hurt so much. You think it's going to just like bring on this, avalanche of loneliness but it doesn't it brings on freedom and a feeling of like power entering into you like the wind is in your sails now when you can start to set boundaries against crap you know that was just crap so good job on that so then yes the hangover the backlash from inside like hold on wait a minute so it's so normal to be like oh i'm afraid i can't really hold this boundary i don't dare because basically we're afraid we're going to be alone forever that's everybody's core fear so if you have that fear just keep writing it It's, it's just always there. It's part of being human. And the one thing that will keep you out of a relationship forever is emotional entanglement with unavailable people. So the fact that you've pulled yourself out of this entanglement, you, you know, really very positive step towards love. Good job. But what you noticed is that it feels like you've navigated the high seas on a storm and your adrenals are exhausted. And there it is the triggered, trauma response to getting manipulated, tricked, deceived, seduced, um, have your boundaries violated where he comes back again for more and you had to set the boundary again and the fear involved in setting the boundary. This is a physiological thing you're doing here physiologically we've been trapped in that fear of abandonment and physiologically we've been compelled to attach to people who were no good these are all physiological phenomenon physiologically neurologically we were damaged by trauma in the first place so you bet it's physical I've said before that sometimes when I know that I'm about to like blow, I'm about to go into like an emotional flashback, I can feel it creeping down my arms. But what that is, it's a chemical release in my bloodstream. Oh my gosh, it's real. So yeah, there's a hangover. There's a hangover. And so that it's a lot of stress on the body going through all of that, but you came right back out of it. So this is a good time to treat yourself like you did just have a crisis. Drink a lot of water, exercise, don't do alcohol and sugar right now. Treat yourself like something toxic has flown through you. Get your rest, move around, and get lots of love from your friends. I just like the fact that you have six friends to go to, you've got to be a member. If you're in our membership program there's like people, there's like people you can call for each of these things and people you put it out there and there's a lot of support and I really really support everyone to find that kind of support for themselves whether it's with us or a 12-step group or a counseling group or wherever you can find it. I know that for people with CPTSD that circle of friends is one of the things that we usually have lost. Then came the pandemic and made it worse prioritize that everybody have a group of friends who you can go to and be like i feel like i'm gonna call them i feel like i'm gonna cave and they can go no no denise no don't do it we love you you're great you're beautiful you're good we all need that we need that we need those friends all right so great work denise i can't wait to hear what comes next you've just taken a huge step forward and i'm proud of you if your history of trauma has complicated the relationships in your life, you are going to need some ninja boundaries. These are not just everyday boundaries, they are fierce but invisible boundaries that you can use with people who would otherwise be setting off your trauma reactions and who would flip out if they even knew that you were setting boundaries with them. Haha, right? You win, they win. And it lets you get out of social situations that used to be hard for you with all your lovely mental and emotional energy intact and working beautifully. Now, how many times have you lost three days of happiness and focus and energy because you paid a visit to your family of origin where that environment has never been easy for you? You might have felt like you had to tell them off or that you needed to cut contact. And believe me, there is a time and a place for those two two reactions. But sometimes you don't want to make any big dramatic moves. You just want to stay connected and maybe spend a holiday with people. And you just want to get through it feeling okay about yourself and how you handled it. And maybe even enjoy yourself. Now this isn't just about families, it's about anyone who is hard for you to be around or any situation where your trauma symptoms, the strong emotions, the body dysregulation that we can feel sometimes uh, when we're around people who are difficult for us. Maybe it's an ex that you need to see and you share custody or it's a lunch with people who haven't treated you very well at work but you need to go. Or you wanna go to a neighborhood gathering or a high school reunion or a chat with the parents of your kids' friends. All of those things have been stressful for me, I know. If it is hard, you take with you your ninja boundaries. So I call them that because it's almost like a martial art to duck out of the way of incoming hurt and not get tangled up in arguments or tension. You don't want to hurt the other person. You, You just want to do what needs to be done and you want to leave feeling good. So getting into conflicts when you're triggered, it it always feels terrible. It's hardly ever worth it. So sometimes, yes, it can't be avoided, true. But I'm gonna help you think through how you get triggered and see why the best way to win in this situation is to fly above it. When you can do that, you actually create freedom for yourself to be in social situations that used to feel just like too much. You used to have to avoid them. You know, either you felt awful or you just didn't go. And neither of these options is always the best one. Your healing accelerates when you get good at ninja boundaries. When you use them, people can't really hurt you. And the key is they don't even know that, you're, that anything's different. They don't notice. So here's how to do it. The first thing is, if you go to see people... Own your decision and go only if you actually want to go. Take 100% responsibility for the decision and make it as positive as you can. If you don't wanna go, like don't go. The worst thing you can do is get into a situation where you go uh, expecting other people to make it work for you and then they don't and you blame them. So 100% responsibility, go ahead and own it. Number two, think through your plan about how you're gonna do this. Think it through slowly. Don't think it impulsively. Don't like cast yourself as the hero who can do anything when historically you've actually been really hurt and bothered by these these encounters with people. So give yourself the time to anticipate the kind of stressful situations that are likely to happen and how you can prepare for them. Number three, use your boundaries, but not as weapons. The people who have known us for a long time are often shocked when we actually say no to some of their expectations and when we take care of ourselves. Don't demand that other people change their behavior. This can be perceived as aggression and it's likely to be met with more aggression. Your boundary can be to come or not come or to have a plan B if things become uncomfortable. If you need to leave, you can do that but do it with as much gentleness and non-judgment as possible. Next one, acknowledge to yourself the emotions that this brings up for you. Perhaps sadness, uh, anger, disappointment, shame, feeling ignored. You can feel these things but you don't have to discuss it. You don't have to talk about it during the visit in any case with the people who hurt you. If you have someone there who totally understands and supports you, you can reach out to them for check-ins. Okay, also limit your time in situations that stress you. Try limiting your contact to like 30 minutes or two hours or do whatever amount of time you like so that you have a way to step back and calm down if the need arises. You can avoid unnecessary conflicts. You can do this without anyone knowing you're doing it and there's a time and a place to express yourself and set the record straight with people who have wronged you. But the time to do it is not a family holiday it's not going to be nice for anybody and it's especially not going to be nice for you so set that aside remember that the party is for everyone it's for them too you may be feeling hurt and judged but sometimes the best thing For that is to take your mind off what you feel and just think about who in the room might benefit from a kind word or a little acknowledgement. As someone who's suffered emotionally quite a lot and been stressed out in social situations or family situations, this is one of my super tools is just to go ahead and take the focus off myself. Stop taking the temperature of how do I feel and focus on who in the room could use a little help. Next one, don't talk about controversial things. When people talk about politics or religion or money, or especially politics, you can just smile and nod and listen to and say just neutral things like, "Mm-hmm, I see what you mean. "Mm-hmm, Yeah, good point. Or yes, I've heard so many people say they feel that way too. If you remember nothing else, remember this, the situation where you're under stress and not feeling safe with people is not a good one to try to sort out or solve the problems of the country. Keep it in mind. Your goal is to go in there, connect, make an appearance, be kind, get out. All right. Next one, take care of yourself. This is the secret to fending off depression and dysregulation, but it's also the secret to getting through a situation, especially if you're at a multi-day event and you know it's gonna be hard, you know you're gonna have emotions, you're gonna feel ground down, or a lot of us, we sort of forget, we always think like this time will be different. But if it's been this way in the past, here are four things you can do to help take care of yourself. Get your sleep no matter what. Get fresh air and exercise every day, no matter what. Eat protein at every meal, no matter what, and drink lots of water, no matter what, even if you just ate a ton of carbs, which happens at holidays. That was actually number three. The fourth one is use your daily practice twice a day to keep discharging fearful and resentful thoughts. If you haven't learned the daily practice yet, come on in, it's a free course. It's linked below this video and every video. I have a free tools page on my website. The link to that is right down there in the description section. And you can go there. I've got quizzes and I've got that free course, the daily practice. You can learn and try it in less than an hour. And it's a way to just, ah, you can just, you can process your emotions in a totally safe way that doesn't create drama anywhere in your life or hurt anyone. I do it twice a day. I've done that for 28 years and it's helped me with every accomplishment that I can claim in my life (laughs) it's helped me help me to have less PTSD and more me more Anna you know just living my life so it's a very positive thing and if you come if you take that free course by the way you'll be invited to free calls zoom calls that I offer twice a month with everybody who's taken the course we use the techniques together and I take questions so just a note a lot of people don't have money for courses or therapy so this is a free thing you can do okay my last point have a plan B in case things go south at this interaction that you've lined up or a holiday, some Thanksgiving or Christmas gathering, line up a place where you can stay if things get weird or if they get ugly or if they fall through. If you have a way to get to this place, your, your, your plan B accommodation, like having your own car or um, having a ride sharing app on your phone or planning a route on public transport, all the better. Look online for places and gatherings where you can go. Like you may not need an overnight place to stay, but you just need a place to decompress for an hour or two. Yeah, 12-step meetings. A lot of times at, during holidays, 12-step fellowships, they have marathon meetings you can go to and hang out or you can just drop in. Um, even if you're not an alcoholic, that's the most common meeting that you'll find in cities. Uh, AA meetings, if they're open, anyone can come and you can just listen. Occasionally, they'll invite you to say hello. You don't have to. But those are my tips, 10 of them, for when you have to go into a situation that's triggering or difficult for you or bound to bring up old PTSD stuff and how to hold your ninja boundaries. The trick about them is nobody knows you're doing it. There's nothing for them to argue about. You're caring for their feelings even as you protect your tender heart. How can you tell the difference between setting a boundary and just flat out trying to control people? A whole bunch of you responded to a video I made last week that was about subtle ways that supposedly nice people attempt to control you. And a couple of the things I said sparked some comments from people who were either confused or annoyed with me because it appeared to them that I was saying nobody can ever set a boundary or express concern about other people or else they're controlling. So I thought I'd make a follow-up video and just read some of the Comments um, both thoughtful and critical about this and respond to it so that we can make, do a little deeper dive and talk about this because for people with complex PTSD that fuzzy line between expressing our boundaries and holding them and control is confusing and it deserves a little extra time here. So, in my post last week, I listed nine subtle control strategies that people might use against you. And just to call your attention, you know, when somebody's trying to control you. And the first two, I think, were what set off the kind of alarm bells for some people. One of them is what I call outsourcing responsibility. And that's when somebody tries to make you walk on eggshells and change your behavior and jump through hoops so that they don't get triggered. And doing that instead of kind of, you know, healing and learning to manage their own triggers or not going into situations. That they can't stand. The example I gave in that one was a person who doesn't like to be around drinking getting so upset that other people keep drinking alcohol around them even though they know that they don't like it. All right so that was one. The other one that seemed to set off a few um, comments that people were bothered was what I call concern shaming and that's something that's a word I made up for something that I've witnessed where a person is actually has a criticism And because maybe they don't feel like it's uh, fair to criticize or they don't want to see themselves as somebody who criticizes, they mask it as just being concerned about you. You know, are you really sure you want to go for that goal because you know that's going to be really hard for you and you know how you kind of break down and get fragile around things. All right so that's like shaming somebody in the name of concern. But as some of you pointed out um, there is a time and a place to express concern for people especially when they're in danger. So let's just get that out on the table. If a person is in danger of harming themselves or other people, you know, who cares if you look controlling? Do whatever you can to stop the bad thing from happening. Now, the fact is when you have CPTSD, the line is confusing. And I don't know about you, but like I've had a lot of alcoholics and addicts in my life. And even though I was going to 12-step programs to get help with how to like deal with that in a sane way, because it drives you nuts. It drives you nuts living with somebody who has an addiction. And, and and does tend in many people, including me, to bring out controlling tendencies. Like you just want to make it stop and you're just like, gosh, just just listen to reason. You know, if you keep doing this, you're going to lose your job. If you keep doing this, I can't be with you. If you keep doing this and all of this, the control can kind of creep in as a substitute for actually having boundaries. It's It's a form of a fake boundary, right? Controlling. It's not really... It's not really a boundary. And I use the example of drugs and alcohol because that's something, and probably many other things are too, and it's debatable, but whether you pressure that person or make threats or ultimatums against them or not, it probably influences very little whether they're going to change. That doesn't mean you can't say it. That doesn't mean you can't express boundaries or preferences or wishes. And that doesn't mean you can't leave them. So the thing I wanna say to clarify what is a boundary versus All other you know kinds of behaviors that we're talking about. A boundary ultimately is that point where you walk away. You can say like if you get drunk I am going to leave but the point where you leave is when that boundary becomes real. It's all talk up until that point. It's real when you walk away and you get to set boundaries. But what I hear in a lot of people with CPTSD, and honestly, especially people who are younger maybe, or newer to recovery, is the belief that this is a right, that I have a right to say, I have a right to make somebody stop drinking. And this is going to sound harsh, but we actually don't have a right to make anybody do anything like that. We have a right to leave, but they have a right to keep drinking it's almost impossible to influence people in every way that we would like them to. And the thing is, so if we get away from drinking and things that are dangerous, but let's just say we don't like um, somebody, uh, I don't know, dressing in a sloppy way or something, you know, something that doesn't endanger anyone, but you don't like it and you say, you know, I really wish you'd dress in a nicer way. I really wish you would. I I don't wanna go out with you unless you're gonna dress nicely. You can see how this can turn into controlling behavior. If it's really a problem, For you, it sort of becomes your problem, right? So that's what this was about is that is that continually criticizing somebody and expecting them to change is a form of criticism and control. There is a gray area where when somebody is in danger or when somebody is making a mistake in their life, yes, a good friend may be show their good friendship by saying, you know what, I think you're making a mistake. So I wanted to read to you some of the comments that came in. So Melody Lacey said, we who have PTSD or CPTSD keep hoping that by controlling our environment, we will prevent future attacks. You got it. You've got it, Melody. You've nailed it on the nose. If we could just work hard enough, then things will never go crazy again. And it's hard to know the fine line between teaching and micromanagement. And there it is, Melody, you've laid the foundation for what the dilemma is here. All right, R. May said, I wouldn't want other people to nag me, but I wouldn't want people in my life to sit back and watch me engage in unhealthy or destructive behavior without saying anything to me or encouraging me to be a better version of myself. This intimate connection and trust are what differentiates my personal relationships with friends and family from those on the periphery and mere passers-by on the street. So that is a beautiful example of how somebody who actually has a good relationship could be a positive influence by calling somebody out on something that's a problem. But I I just sort of invite everyone to look at that and say, can you imagine how that veers off into strictly criticizing and attempting to control somebody? It is good when a dear friend says something. And um, I recently had to give a lot of thought to deciding whether to tell somebody very close to me that I thought there was a problem too. Um, I thought something in their behavior was affecting one of their kids. And I got very tangled up about it, actually feeling depressed, like I don't dare say anything, but I feel like I should, I feel like I should. And then eventually it came out and I was able to express it. It was a difficult conversation, but in the end it was it was done lovingly, it was done in a context of offering love and support. and. Part of why I did this video is because I was worried about this situation, actually. And so I was kind of living this, I was living this question as I created this video. So that's what that was. All right, Mumu said, This really hits home. I'm struggling with two relationships right now that are triggering me way off the charts. But if I peel back the layers, it's all my own BS that I want them to adjust for. One doesn't remember my triggers, keeps mentioning them, and I feel betrayed. A quiet storm rages inside me. The other is living recklessly and might end up in the psych ward or have their child taken away by the state if they don't slow down. Okay, very serious. I admit I get unreasonably upset over them with anxiety attacks. I project my regrets and resentments onto them. I'm constantly giving them unsolicited advice. Yikes, who do I think I am that they should do what I say? Well, Mumu, I think that everything that you said about who do, you, we, who do you think you are and where you feel remorseful about giving unsolicited advice applies to the first friend. But the one who might end up in a psych ward and have their child taken away, I think is a different case and who you are as a friend. And I think that would be a case where you express concern. And my experience is, is that if you can do it with utmost love and support, instead of just, you do this, you do that, you suck, I would never be screwed up like you. If you can do it with love, it's a lot more likely to be heard and helpful. I had uh, a family in my life sometime back where the kids were, it, it was looking to me like maybe the kids should be removed. I know a lot of you out there have had this dilemma. What's threatening about that is A, if the kids are removed and go into a foster care system, is it gonna be any better than what they're in right now? But B, if you initiate something like that, as much as it's promised that you can stay anonymous, If the family finds out it was you or even suspects it's you, they will cut off all contact with the kids. And so there's always this dilemma when you're observing kids who might be getting abused. Like, how can you make sure that you're in their life so that you can keep an eye on things? Like, either you have to go all in and get them reported and make that whole machine you know, lurch into motion or keep an eye on things. So that's one of the really hard and difficult gray areas of when to express concern about things. So Mumu, I'm just saying to you, I think that having the psych ward, child taken away thing, it's time to express concern. And if that doesn't work, possibly to call authorities, honestly. All right. Um, Tracy said, for those who find it difficult to know when offering advice or suggestions would be appropriate, simply asking, would you mind if I offer advice? Or would you be open to hearing a suggestion? That way you both know where you stand. <laughs> I'll be honest, when people say that to me, I just like totally like go, what are they about to say? But I always will say yes. I'll say I'll, I'll go into fear, but I'll say yes. But I can tell like a criticism is coming. Still though, Tracy, I think you're right. Like expressing that and showing that respect to say, do you want to hear it is appropriate. And Tracy goes on to say, most times people assume that advice is what the other person wants or needs without checking in with them first. So for you, it could be a way to connect, but for them, it could be disconnecting, uh, but not truly being seen or heard. And Carla Barron said, There were times when I was engaged in self-destructive behaviors and people called me on it gently, but they called me on it. I was actually grateful. There were times I was as incredibly self-unaware of how I was coming across or things that I maybe didn't want to admit to myself but needed to In order to heal. If someone I know cares for me raises a concern I don't see that as a form of control. I've had to raise concerns with people I'm close with and it does come from a place of care. What they do with it is completely up to them however. Carla Baron, you've got it, there it is. What they do with it is their concern. Um, And again unless somebody else is in danger here. As someone who has CPTSD, I appreciate the understanding of others. However, no one is obligated to tiptoe around my trauma or my triggers. More so, if my trauma responses victimize other people, then they really don't have to tiptoe. Yes, it's kind to hold a space for others while they're healing. The space still needs to be respected. So yeah, okay, thank you for that. Um, Rachel Fabish said, I found this video really useful and challenging. I have a question. I'm in a new job with a focus on preventing family harm. What are your thoughts on concern shaming around this topic? It's quite normal in this work to encourage people to express their concerns. For example, your kid seems to be afraid of you. That's not okay. Do you need help? Is there a way to interrupt violence and abuse that isn't also controlling? So that's a great question. So first of all, if you're in an organization where the whole point is to prevent family harm, then of course the form it's going to take is in an expression of concern. Um, I would imagine that you guys are in the business of providing supportive environments, creating spaces where people can talk, doing outreach, and when you see something going wrong, saying out loud that you see it and uh, finding the gentlest possible way to go in. That's what I hear you doing. I'm so glad you're there doing that. That's great. So that is your business. All right, that is your business. When I made this video talking about concern shaming, I'm not really talking about professional work, however, since we went there, I just want to say that I think it is possible for people in a professional capacity to use concern shaming. I know that as a kid growing up in a family that had a lot of violence and alcoholism, that on the rare occasion when professionals or adults sort of uh, noticed something was going on and talked to me, No matter what they said, I felt deeply ashamed and I found it impossible to talk to them or admit that anything was going on. I flat out denied it to everybody, to a doctor, a neighbor who was a psychologist, a neighbor who was a nurse who noticed things. Um, The police who picked me up once when I was out in the snow outside of a casino for many hours and um, I was super self-protective and couldn't hear it. I I can't say enough how much a feeling of dignity was at stake for me and people noticing that something was wrong. As a child, I really felt like my own worth as a human being was at stake if people saw what was going on and that's just what kids do. (laughs) <laughs> but I think it's also what adults do. And so when you really are concerned about somebody, my rule of thumb is you can start super gentle with them at maybe 20% of the information. You know, if you want to say, la, 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 say, ah, ah, ah. and it'll often be enough to get the idea across and express the concern and leave a space for people to respond to what you just said. As a person with CPTSD, when I feel scared, when I feel threatened, Um, or upset or strongly about something, I can be very intense. I don't know about you like not everybody with CPTSD but it's pretty common right? I can be very intense and that's one of the sort of mitigations I've learned is if I feel this big about something I can express myself like this and the idea gets across much more effectively. This just sounds like yelling to people right? Or it is yelling. All right, Um, written piece of paper said, please help. How do I know the difference between me being controlling and me setting boundaries? I added someone as an authorized user to my credit card. They almost maxed it out. I tried setting a repayment schedule but they're calling me controlling. Am I? All right. I'm so glad you asked this one <laughs> because no you're not controlling enough. That's what's going on. Not control. There's no boundary here. And. Um, There's not enough details here, but I'm assuming this is maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend or a family member who you chose to believe could be trusted with your credit card. So adding them as an authorized user of your card is putting your trust in them that they're gonna spend an appropriate amount. And I don't know if you gave them a dollar limit or an expectation of paying you back or how to pay you back or how often or a payment plan, but it sounds like from what you said, that either they ignored what you set up or they it was never communicated to them and either way i'm sensing here a real difficulty setting boundaries that this may have been like more idealized thinking that somebody could handle it and they couldn't and now they've almost maxed out your card so the first thing can i give you unsolicited advice maybe like cut off cut them off from the card this is not good keeping that card open isn't going to cause you to get paid back or anything. Um, and I I, I kind of would be surprised if you get paid back if they disrespected the other boundary. It's not controlling. That is your money and your card. So that is not inappropriate for you to control. I totally sympathize though. Um, you wouldn't be on this channel I think if you didn't have CPTSD and that abuse and neglect in your childhood hadn't like muddied the water for you about like can I, get, can I share my credit card with somebody and expect them to honor me? With this person, no it turns out. This may be an expensive live and learn opportunity here where you start to learn that if you're going to share money with somebody there needs to be a much clearer agreement between you. But anyway, I really do hope you get paid back. I hope you use this as an opportunity to step up strong set, and, and set your expectations with this and do your best to save the relationship. Ah, money problems, huh? You know what's funny about money? Like not having money certainly brings up a lot of stress but funnily enough people who have money also seem to go into a lot of stress about money. So a lot of it has to do with the way we share money with other people. So I hope you get this worked out and um, to a good mutual agreement and that you get paid back and that after this you feel more empowered to set your boundaries about this, um, about limits and payment. All right, So Destroy Raiden said, here's, this one's kind of a snarky comment, so all concern is bad. All asking someone about where they're going or what they'll be doing is bad. Asking them to stop doing things that trigger and hurt you is bad. Um, So this is, this, I can see this email is getting very global here. It's about all things and uh, Destroy Raiden probably knows really well. Of course I didn't say all things are bad. But I'll read on. It just feels like you're supposed to be detached from your loved ones until they decide to tell you something. And it cuts off bonding entirely as you can't ask about anything in their life or suggest they do something or help themselves. So why should they ask about you or care to suggest things to you? And it also feels like you're saying you can't tell them how their actions are triggering and harming you to set up a boundary or don't do that. Destroy Raiden what you're saying right here, it just sounds so much like my mind when I'm in distress about people. I think you've just articulated perfectly the confusion about like, what can I say? What can I reasonably expect? Why don't people care about me? All that stuff. You're, you know, what you're describing. I'm not sure if that's where you meant to go, but I'm feeling you. Okay. So I hear you about how painful it is when you, no matter how much you ask people uh, what you need and to respect boundaries, like desperately needing some boundaries around your privacy or your basic needs, and they're just tromping all over them. I had an older brother. He died when he was 38. I was 31 from drugs and alcohol. But the whole time he lived He was a boundary crusher. He was, he, I was anxious all the time that he was, you know, if he got in touch with me, I would become anxious. If he knocked on the door, I often wouldn't let him in. I just, you know, I had a really hard time like holding the boundary on him. He had spent his whole life. He was the one who tickled, tortured me. He used to steal my little babysitting money, all my little dollars. I would hide them under my mattress and he would find them. He would read my journal. So I had trouble keeping boundaries with my brother. So I know how fraught it gets. And so sometimes not being able to maintain your boundaries does develop this, this kind of compensation thing of controlling. Now, whatever I had to do to control my brother's behavior, I basically consider legitimate to keep him out of my life or to keep him from, you know, completely wrecking things in some social situation that he might enter into when he was drinking or using. But there are many other relationships where that same controlling behavior carried over and it wasn't appropriate. And when we get controlling, we push people away. Now when I made this video last week, I focused on when people do it to you, and it feels yucky. And a lot of people, I'm so proud of you for this really, a lot of people self-reflected and said, you know what, I do that, I do that, and I do too. I do the controlling behaviors, I have them done to me. And the more I am in touch with how much I don't like it when people do this to me, the more I'm able to stop doing it to other people. So as I heal from CPTSD, it's more and more rare that I have people who are total boundary crushers in my life. It still happens, but it's not the huge problem overwhelming my life that it used to be. That gradually changes with healing. And so likewise, my 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 need to control isn't getting all mixed up with situations that are actually dangerous or anything. And I have the luxury of really looking at When am I asking people to observe a boundary and when am I crossing the line into controlling them? There's just like a line that's crossed and it's never going to have like a neon sign around it so you know when you're crossing the line. So you're going to have to be tuned into the situation. You're going to have to be tuned in reading other people about it. One thing I use is a rule of three. My husband takes off his shoes and leaves them on the side of the bed where I get into the bed and when I get up in the middle of the night I trip over his shoes. So I say, you move your shoes, don't put them by the bed. I trip over them in the middle of the night and sometimes it happens after I've already gone to bed so I don't know they're there, right? (laughs) And he says, yes, yes, of course I'll do that. Well, guess what? He forgets and the shoes are there. I've probably asked him 10 times. 10 times is too many, rule of three. Ask three times if they still can't or won't do it, do it yourself. Now, these shoes are not anything I would ever even consider leaving my cool husband for. But I don't like it, I've gotten testy with him about it. And you know what I do? When I come to bed, I move the shoes myself. And when I wake up in the middle of the night and I need to get up, I just remember now, I walk gingerly and if there's shoes there, I kick them out of the way and continue to walk and I just handle it. For something of that size it's not worth getting into continuous criticism with him or to argue about. It's just something that's worth adjusting and I could I won't do it but I could list a dozen things around the house. I happen to like with jars and Tupperware I want them put away with the top on. Nobody in my family really thinks that's important and it just drives me insane and it's time for me to stop complaining about it. All right so that's something those are nice easy examples of where I can ask for something I want but at a certain point to continue asking when I can't get it is controlling behavior. And if I wanna just stick around and I do, I love my family, I'm gonna have to find another way to deal with it. See, I just feel like you should be able to go into the cupboard and get a Tupperware thing with the top and not have to dig around for something that matches for five minutes. I don't like that. And honestly, because I'm dysregulated, I, I, I get very dysregulated. It helps me to have things kind of orderly like that. It helps me and helps me conserve focus and patience you know, and peace inside to be able to have that. On the other hand, having arguments and being all resentful about it sabotages my peace of mind. So I weigh it up and I go, oh gosh, I'll just get the freaking top and put it on here. And and every once in a while I sit down on the floor and I go into the cupboard and I put tops on everything. And there's always a few things that have lost their tops and I chuck those, that's how I do it, all right? (laughs) That's my happiness solution. You thought it was magic, no, it's just practical. So I hope that helps to clarify uh, both the um, when there's in danger, when someone's in danger, don't worry about looking controlling, just do the right thing. (laughs) When something's really trivial, see if you can solve the problem yourself and try to be thoughtful about that middle ground, that middle ground that's kind of gray about where you want to express your boundaries or express your concern to somebody without overstepping and how you can do that. So much of recovery is about learning to express ourselves. In order to become our real selves, we must express ourselves, right? So so the path of recovery is always going to involve this sort of experimentation where you do express yourself and you get a response or a reaction and sometimes you get cooperation and sometimes you get conflict and you begin to learn what happened. Now, if you're like me, getting into conflict is very very dysregulating and that's why I teach the daily practice. That's the free course. I put it under every video I make. It's free. It's you can learn these techniques in less than an hour but they can help to unpack the stress of being in conflict with people or to be confused or to not know the right thing. You have a place to put those thoughts and take a rest from them and my experience is is that having used these techniques you come out of that Of the writing and the meditation just a little bit clearer about what the next step is, about what is the situation, what ought I to do about it. Here's the paradox of boundaries. You think if you set a boundary that you're risking having people leave you. Like if you're not a doormat, who would even stay around for that? But the truth is it's a lack of boundaries that causes you to be isolated. This was a revelation to me and I want to share with you the fourth video in my four-part series on isolation and loneliness. These videos were so popular they became the basis for a mini course that I put out that year and then I expanded it last year into my connection Bootcamp. and so many people are taking that. That is like a whole 30-day course um, that gives you a video and a worksheet every day and if you're interested you can check it out on my website crappychildhoodfairy.com or in the links down below but I thought that I might remake this series um, but this video just exactly as it is is still so true I'm just sharing it as it as is from me to you why a lack of boundaries keeps you isolated Have you ever been at home and you hear the doorbell and you're pretty sure it's somebody selling something or giving out literature and instead of answering the door, you hide like on the floor whispering so they don't like know you're there? Have you done this? This is a form of isolating because we don't trust ourselves to have boundaries. And that's the topic of this video in my series on isolation. Isolation is a totally common symptom of childhood PTSD, and a lack of boundaries is a big reason why we get isolated. Now, I know that when I hit on the floor of my kitchen, and I dragged my kids into this too, by the way, We were totally laughing really quietly and, you know, in the scheme of things this is pretty unimportant in terms of causing isolation in my life, but a lot of us when we're isolating we do the same thing around important things. We ignore texts from friends, we leave early at events where there's likely to be conversation, or when a friend calls asking if you can give them a ride you pretend you never got the message. Do you ever do this? Now, I know there are sometimes good self-protecting reasons to just avoid facing certain people. They're dangerous, they've become a total nuisance, and you don't have time right now to face them and deal with disappointing them. But I'm talking about the way that we sometimes choose to isolate even from people we care about Even from opportunities for work or fun that we used to crave in our lives and the reason we do it in that moment may seem like a good idea but when you stand back it's because the demands on you in that relationship or that work project or that dinner party could in your mind like go out of control and a lot of us fear being sucked in or overwhelmed or stuck in a situation where you're miserable but if you look at it, it would be really hard for somebody else to actually trap you in a situation where you didn't want to be. Being literally trapped in a bad situation was something that used to happen to me when I was a kid, and then I've been physically attacked and held at gunpoint a couple of times. But other than that, I actually had a choice about where I was, who I hung out with, and what I said yes to. And so. All the times where I felt pushed or coerced or trapped or miserably obligated were really me not having the inner strength to say no. It was me being afraid what people think of me or me going on a long path of people pleasing a little here a little there until I was deeply embedded in some situation I actually resented. I said yes so many times because I couldn't deal with saying no that I didn't even remember how I got there. It begins to seem like other people are doing this to you. So the paradox of learning to say no to people, not through ignoring them, but through responding with a real communicated no, is that it frees us to stay connected. And when we're confident that we can give something a try, we could attend a meeting, we could go on a date or take on a project and then and you know that you can still say no the next time or even in the middle of it when you know that you absolutely have freedom when you are in charge of when you say yes and no isolation is not necessary anymore you can choose solitude at times which is healthy and necessary but you don't have to avoid people altogether it's okay to say no It's called boundaries and people respect you for having boundaries. We all prefer to connect with people who take care of themselves, who are not secretly resentful that they've said yes to us. It doesn't do us a favor and it doesn't do them a favor. Now here's a secret about boundaries. They go two ways. A boundary is what you say no to but it's also saying yes to things that are right for you to say yes to. So let's call the yes ones responsibility boundaries. When a father doesn't support his kids financially, he's breaking a responsibility boundary. And when someone says they'll pick you up at 8 a.m. and they never show up or call, they just broke a responsibility boundary. And notice that the father who doesn't pay, the friend who doesn't show up at your house, they are isolating too. And we can isolate by avoiding saying no, and we can isolate by avoiding saying yes. So childhood PTSD can really do a number on us in our capacity to say yes and no at the right times. Now that discernment begins to heal when we take positive steps toward healing and we get out of the shadows of isolation and I mean watch out if you stay isolated over the years it will start to bring out the worst in you. It does that to everybody. So recovery means learning this discernment. When you know your own mind and you can say yes or no politely or really fiercely if necessary, your urge to isolate will get smaller and smaller. And you'll be amazed when you're expressing yourself on these day-to-day things saying yes and no, how much your life fills up with good people and real connections. Have you ever thought you were developing a friendship with someone and you like them and they're so nice and you trust them and then all of a sudden in the guise of just being friendly, they try to sell you something and you're like, is this what the relationship was actually all about? It's shocking, right? And this is where people who were neglected or abused as kids often feel like they have to pretend that nothing weird just happened. That's why traumatized people make such good customers for people who are involved in multi-level marketing schemes. We will buy something we don't want just to avoid the pain of realizing that someone's friendliness may not have been entirely real. Now, I'm all for people learning sales and being good at it, but good sales is honest and straightforward. When someone tries to sell something to you, but they conceal from you that that is what the social interaction is all about, It's deception. It's wrong. It's preying on people's need for connection. And not only will people who are traumatized as kids, uh, want to avoid the pain of seeing that it wasn't real friendship, but they don't want to deal with the having conflict with the person calling them out and saying, Hey, you said this was a social get together. What happens is a traumatized person will often say nothing, but never trust that person again. But What if these salesy friends are all around you? My letter today is from a woman I'll call Aimee, and she writes, Hi Anna. Some background. I suffer from CPTSD. My mother left when when I was young and my father was a malignant narcissist, an alcoholic, misogynist, and did everything in his power to isolate me so that I could not socialize or participate in extracurricular activities. Circling a couple things there. I will read all the way through so we can hear your story, Aimee, and then I'll come back to what I circled and I'll see if I can help you. I think I have a feeling where this is going, though. (laughs) I'm now a happy wife, says Aimee, and a mother in my mid-30s. I have everything else I've ever wanted out of life, but I have no friends. I have a hard time trusting others, especially women. Having no friends doesn't bother me as much as it would other people because I enjoy spending time with myself and my family. I probably haven't had a friend in around six years. Wow. Before that, people would sometimes ghost me for pain dumping on them or being obnoxious. I smoked a lot of weed and I was a (laughs) loudmouth. This was before I decided to work toward happiness, get sober, and develop better self-awareness. You know I'm gonna like that part, okay. My family and I moved to a new country two years ago. Our neighbor, a local who miraculously only makes friends with Americans, has made several overtures of friendship. However, every single time she has invited me over under the guise of socialization, one or multiple sales pitches would ensue. She wanted our daughters to be friends only to try to sell us custom-made children's furniture. (laughs) when we arrived on the play date. I didn't think much of it because it was her family business at the time and I ended up purchasing some pieces. Mm. Okay. It quickly became a pattern. First it was an appliance, then a weight loss shake. I even asked her which water delivery service she used and she tried to sell me a water filter. She's tried to sell me wine, skin products, photography sessions, personal training and more. Most of these are multi-level marketing. Some would call them pyramid schemes. My husband thinks it would be beneficial for me to maintain a surface-level friendship with her, but I don't want someone selling to me every time I see them. I've distanced myself from her kindness. It became clear that she didn't want friendship from me. This experience has made me nervous about making friends here. I've been working from home for five years. Then I had three back to back pregnancies and COVID hit. Now I'm living in a foreign country. I'm not sure if it's worth trying to put myself out there because it's harder to gauge a person's character when there are cultural and linguistic barriers. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to tell if somebody truly wants to be my friend because they like me. This is a bit of a hustle culture and Americans are seen as wealthy. I can respect a business mindset and normally I would like to support neighbors and friends, but I have no idea how to tell if someone is genuinely interested in being my friend. I would love some advice going forward because my judgment is off. Do I set hard boundaries not to support someone's business unless it's something that I'm genuinely interested in? Or do I set a time limit and make sure we've become friends first? Should I see any hustle as a big red flag? I'm already skeptical of people who want to be my friend. Now we live in a place where multi-level marketing uh, schemes and side hustles are common among women. Please offer any advice you can, even though I don't feel particularly lonely. I want my kids to have a mother who is a normal person with friendships. Signed from Amy. Okay. Thank you for sending that in, Amy. I think I can help. Let's go back and I'll go over what you told me. So your mother left when you were a kid, and that just sounds like the big profound wound right there. Your father was no gem. A malignant narcissist, an alcoholic, a misogynist, did everything to isolate you so you couldn't socialize or participate in extracurricular activities. I don't know what that was about, but that is a really harsh background. And on the one hand, I'm impressed that you're able to succinctly tell me what the issue was there, and you're able to move on. I mean, it's like three lines right there. and um, But I, I know I don't need to tell you, that is a very harsh background, and it totally explains why you would have difficulty around friendship. So your happy wife and mother in your 30s, that, you know, like high five, because it's very hard to put that together. To put together a marriage and um, a family and everything that you're doing, it's it sounds very high-functioning. So that's really impressive. And in your 30s too, so you have a lot going for you. You have a lot of inner strengths. Um, you know, you say it doesn't bother you so much not having friends, but at the end of your letter you said this is more about your kids having a normal mother. So first, I give you permission to not be a big social butterfly. If you're happy how you are, you do get to be yourself. But yes, I know how play dates are so important. And I personally, I I found the um, friendships with other kids' families to be one of the harder areas of life for me. I didn't always relate to people, but the kids liked each other, and so, you know, I was sort of thrust together with people that I wasn't totally comfortable with. And, um, and not all of that was because we were different. It's because I was going through a really hard time in my life, and it wasn't something I could talk about openly. Or if I did, I often felt just like remorse. So that was different. You say that in the past, you lost friends because of pain dumping. So that's interesting. You had a lot of pain and they would ghost you people would ghost you and you say you were obnoxious you smoked a lot of weed you were a loudmouth. so you sound like somebody who used to be quite activated by your trauma and now you're not you have sort of levity about it and you got sober you have self-awareness you worked for your happiness it's really a fantastic success story about what's possible so you know i just first of all just just it's okay that you are struggling with friendships and there's time for this to unfold and for your healing to kind of take its next step in this area. But what a drag. (laughs) Your next door neighbor is somebody who has tried to sell you 20 different things. So you're right. I think this person is not interested in friendship. She sounds like she's interested in trying to sell things. And for reasons either that she's, totally insensitive to people, or it's a cultural difference, I suppose, you know, we can grant her that, she doesn't see anything wrong with using friendship and play dates as an opportunity to sell. And that would make me uncomfortable too. And I hope by now you have expressed to her saying, you know, I'd love to have a playdate sometime, but I'm definitely clear. I'm not going to be buying anything. Are you good with that? Then leave the ball in her court to decide that. So she's easier. (laughs) but you are experiencing this from so many people and you say it's the culture of women there so what i zeroed in on you've been working from home for five years which is great with kids that's such a positive thing but man is it isolating huh i've done it too and then three back-to-back pregnancies isolating and then COVID hit, super isolating. Now you're in a foreign country, you have four big isolating factors going on. So I'm really glad that you're not feeling like you're in a crisis over this, but I have a feeling, I agree with you in other words, it's really not just for your kids, it's for you. It's time for you to start growing in this department of having friends and especially women friends. I don't think it's uncommon for a woman to feel, um, untrusting towards other women when her own mother was somebody who would leave. And my mother didn't physically leave, or when she left she came back. But I have had a lot of that too, and I sometimes can tell, I can tell I'm sort of operating on old information and having a little trouble being like real and in present time in those relationships. And so it's gotten so much better for me though since I started healing from what happened. And you probably know if you watch my channel, I use these techniques daily practice. So I'm taking my fearful and resentful thoughts, like, you know, fear women can't be trusted, fear nobody likes me, fear everybody in this country only wants to make a buck off me. I'm projecting what your fears might be. That, that you'd be, you could be getting that on paper and just moving it out so at least it's not activating you. Because even if you're very high functioning, if you had trauma, these thoughts that, you know, people don't care about you, they're against you. They have that little hint of old trauma spice to them, right? And they can really limit you. It can set an unconscious limitation on you that you end up justifying with, who knows? I don't know if it's a justification, but when you say stuff like, I'm fine being alone, I really don't need people. It sounds a little bit like the mantra of an emotional flashback. I don't need anybody. I'm very good like this, right? So everybody needs people. And if you have children and you're in a foreign country, yeah, (laughs) you need, you need friends. So this would be a good area to develop. And I'm glad you're asking about it. Um, You have no idea how to tell if someone is genuinely interested in being my friend. So that's our common symptom that often comes from having your perception denied, messed with, refuted, tricked. And what you said about your dad, um, everything in his power to isolate you so that he, you couldn't socialize or participate. I mean, you wouldn't have brought that up if you, ha- I, I realize you realize that plays a big role. But I would imagine his strategies had to do with telling you lies, basically, about the nature of reality or what people's motives were. They're terrible. You shouldn't do that. And so you have a period of deprogramming ahead of you to get through this hurdle about friendship. I think everybody has to deprogram a little bit, but I think you got given a big dose of nonsense that's providing a barrier, an isolation barrier. And you know, when you have CBTSD, and I think for even if you don't, people can be so triggering. The feeling that they don't really like you, they don't really want you, you're an outsider. Like, oh, it's so primal. It hurts so much. And so the situation that you're in is likely to just keep activating that feeling and if that gets activated it it's gets some muscle to it and next thing you know your isolation continues it could go on for a very long time some people live their whole life this way and i wouldn't want that for you so you were wondering do i set hard boundaries to not support someone's business unless it's something i'm genuinely interested in yes hard boundaries. You can say it with a smile. Thanks. I'm not interested in that, but would love to get together some time for tea. Um, and then you questioned, or do I set a time limit and make sure we become friends first? Um, I think if somebody really is your friend and it goes, I don't know, what would be the time limit? Three months. Uh, if a friend said, I know this is uncomfortable. You probably don't want anything like this. You've told me before because we're friends that you're sort of uncomfortable with people trying to sell you stuff and that you feel confused. Like if you're really forming a friendship with somebody, that would be something they would get to know. If they know that about you and then in a sensitive manner said, I'm trying to sell this thing to make a few bucks, no pressure, but are you interested? I could see how that would fit into a friendship, but everybody has a story about this happening it seems. I've had this happen a couple times where I was friends with somebody and then they would sort of slip it in. I think what I don't like about it when somebody turns out to be trying to sell me something is the deceit. It's the deceit that feels bad and that feeling like, is that what's been going on the whole time. And honestly, I think it's a little similar to what it feels like when somebody has been pretending to be your friend, but it turns out they have romantic interest in you. I don't know if, if you've ever had that experience, but that feels like a betrayal too. Pretending that we feel a way that we don't, you know, faking friendship to get something that we want, it's deceitful and it feels bad and it, um, It loses a little bit of integrity and so of course you want friends who have integrity and whose word you can trust and whose motives are right right out there you know not anything tricky that you have to figure out or control with time or anything like that Um, good for you though you're not pain dumping anymore Um, you said should I see any hustle as a big red flag I would say if people are hustling it's a yellow flag it's just something that you're gonna pay attention to like you will be cordial but not friends until you find out if that's what their motive is or or if they're friendship. And how do you read it? Well, they don't sell you anything. They ask about you. They listen. They are vulnerable. They talk to you about personal details about themselves in an appropriate way for the amount of time you've been friends. Not everything at once. Beware of people, and don't be the person, who just like, you know, you hang out like a couple of times on the sidelines of a kid's soccer game. You're like, oh no, this is abuse and... You don't need to tell everybody all that right off the bat. A good friend is somebody who can, you know, slowly unfold and tell you things about themselves that are personal, that are vulnerable, and that you feel, um, this, is the, this is the main thing you're looking for. It is how you feel with them. How do you feel with them? Now, good salespeople are gifted at making people feel, oh, you like me, I'm so comfortable. So just because you feel good, doesn't mean it doesn't mean that they're your friend but if you feel bad it means it's not a fit so something if you feel violated or weird or tricked about their behavior in any way or you just kind of feel like i don't know something doesn't feel right about this let that be your guide That's one of the things that CPTSD kids got told to shut down, don't listen to it. But when in doubt, just notice how do you feel around a certain person? Do they help you feel lifted up and inspired? Great, proceed to step two and start seeing if it turns out to be a sales pitch. Do they make you feel just bad and put down and left out? Not a fit, no need to go to step two in that friendship. So I hope that helps. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content,